from Matthew 20 to begin, 29 through 34. And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him, that is Jesus. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called to them and said, What do you want me to do for you? And repeat that. And stopping, Jesus called and said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight and followed him. Now Proverbs 3, 5 through 8. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are with us. Thank you, Jesus, that you walk among your churches. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you open up our eyes to behold wondrous things from the Word, to see you, to see ourselves, to see one another. We just ask again that you would do this work today. We pray that you would do more than pique our curiosities or satisfy our intellectual questions. We pray that you would pierce to the division of soul and marrow, to the intentions of our heart, and that you would give us more of the truth that sets us free so that we might live in the freedom we have in your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. When I think about Sundays sometimes as a kid, I'm, I'm very thankful for a dad who took us swimming a lot and would teach us how to swim. Uh, had two Sunday school teachers that had swimming pools, Miss Rice, and Miss Forrest. So now you know. Mary Ellen Rice, Carolyn Forrest. I don't know that they know this. They were very influential in my life. And on those Sunday afternoons, I would learn to swim. But I was a slow learner. So I'd get really afraid. So they both had diving boards. And I remember so many times I would get ready and walk to the end and just not be able to jump. And just imagine a little kid, right? He's got his favorite swimming trunks on, goggles, those arm floaties. You know, you've been there a hundred times, the safety, all kinds of support around you. And then you, you got a dad who's standing there saying, I'm going to catch you. Like, you know, you, if you've been there before, like, you're barely going to go in the water, right? You're going to jump and maybe your legs go in just as much as you want to do. But there's something about getting to that edge and feeling that fear that all y'all, you're so worked up. You got the head knowledge, you got the support. It's just, it's just hard to jump. Now, once you jump, you're like, what was I waiting on? 
This is amazing. And so all of a sudden you go from walking to the edge and turning around and going back afraid to now it's like we're going to do superhero jumps. We're going to do competitions. And then it becomes instead of this fearful thing of just standing around in the shallow and walking to the end, now it's like you know they can't get you to stop. And then when mom and dad want to leave, you're fighting because you have to leave. Well, that was me as a child. And honestly, in many ways, that's me as an adult. It's me in view of these last two weeks even that we've talked about, about recreating the vicious cycles of our story, recreating the vicious cycles of managing relationships so that we don't have to feel that fear and anxiety. But all of us in here, whether you can identify with me or not, come to the point of surrender in our lives again and again where it is necessary for us to grow. Surrender is, first of all, how we become a disciple of Jesus. It's how we start this journey. We say, I will no longer be Lord of my life. I will no longer seek to find forgiveness, acceptance, love through my own doing. I will just trust that you have done enough and I give myself to you. I will deny myself, take up my cross and follow Jesus. But we also need to remember that surrender is not merely how we start this journey. Surrender is how we live this journey. And you might be here saying, well, I didn't really sign up for that. But when Jesus calls us to be his disciples, he doesn't call us to make a one-time decision and then live our own lives. He calls us to make a decision to trust him, to follow him. To jump from the diving board. Again and again, to trust that he's there to catch us, to risk and risk again, to be needy, to lose control, to give up control. And then ironically, in that upside down, and ironically might not be the right use of the word there, English majors, but... In the upside-down way of the kingdom to find that as we give up control, we actually stop being controlled by our fears, by these vicious cycles that we've looked at. Stopping short of surrender will stop the fullness of the life God has for us. You can have all the head knowledge in the world. You can have all the theoretical trust of God and trust of others. But right now you need to think in your life. Maybe it's related to the last two weeks. Maybe it's something where, where have you got it all? You're just not willing to jump. It's Adam and Eve not being willing to trust that God is enough and to seek to get more and then end up with less. It's Cain not trusting that if he trusts God and does what's asked of him, it will be enough and making things worse, trying to make things better. It's Israel freed from Egypt to only when they face the sea and then they face the wilderness to what do they want to do? Let's go back to Egypt. I mean, we may have been slaves, but at least we had bread. It may have been the bread of affliction, but at least we knew we were going to eat. But God is gracious to them and to us. Every one of us in here has our Egypt. And by the grace of God, we've already sang today and celebrated today that God has brought us out of Egypt. But God is still working to get Egypt out of us. 
We are promised land bound. Even more, the eternal life that God has given us is already in us. But the only way that we're going to experience what is ours and to walk is to walk through the wilderness believing that God is actually with us and for us and to surrender our trust to Him even when we don't know what it's going to look like when we take that next step. To stop short of that will mean we remain in our vicious cycles. You can, have all, you can get your psychology degrees. You can have all the self-awareness in the world. But at the end of the day, if you do not surrender to step out by faith to change those deep ingrained patterns in your life and in your story, then you will be the person with all the inside of the world and none of the transformation that Jesus really wants for. In our text today, both of these passages, there's a temptation to lean on our own understanding, to be wise in our own eyes to find freedom. But the only way is surrender. We must jump into surrender if we are to live into the freedom of Jesus. So there's six ways to do this. And then I'm, I've, again, adapted these from different things that I've read and learned in other places. These are not original to me as if anything ever is. But I hope these will help you. Six questions to ask as we wrap up these series. The first one is, we stop short of surrender. In the question, we'll get to the question in a minute. We stop short of surrender by not being aware of our need. We stop short of surrender when we do the opposite of what the proverb says. We lean on our own understanding and we're wise in our own eyes. Notice these guys. We're going to, again, we're going to focus mainly here in in Matthew and refer to Proverbs. Notice verses 29 and 30 again. And they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him, and behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. These guys knew they were blind. Now you might say, oh, well, that's obvious. Well, your, your need, like we've said the last couple weeks, is probably more obvious than you realize. You need to ask somebody in close relationship with you. Do I got anything to work on? If they're honest, they're going to have some things to share. But for many of us, we don't know our need, or we think we know our need. We're wise in our own eyes. We're leaning on our own understanding. We're wanting to go off and just do this personal transformation with the Lord alone. And it is not the way to health. It is not the way to wholeness, because it is not the way that we see our need Jesus even uses this, and we could talk about this a long time. He uses this, and in the Gospels, oftentimes these stories are matched up beside each other of people who have a spiritual blindness but don't realize it, the Pharisees, at times the disciples, with those who actually have a literal blindness and realize it, and it's that those that see their need are those who actually get the experience of mercy. The cry for mercy is a cry saying, we cannot get out of this by our own power. We can't do it. Did, you play, did anybody in here play mercy in school growing up? That's another great, right? We're trying to break each other's hands. The first one says mercy, right? Because you're like, I, I give up. I do not have power in this situation. They were extremely needy and they knew it. They were beggars who were desperate for change. Do you know your need? At times, our, our attempts for change can be like taking a car in to get it worked on. 
thousands of times, it seems like. You spend a lot of time, a lot of money, a lot of headache, and the car doesn't change, and why doesn't it change is because you're not really dealing with the thing that needs to be worked on. That's why going to a good mechanic is you want to go to someone who doesn't just have skills to work on a car, but someone who can diagnose what the problem is correctly so that you work on the right thing. The problem is with us and our recreating our stories and our managing our relationships is that our brains and our bodies are actually fighting really hard alongside the world, the flesh, and the devil to not let us work on the area that really needs to be worked on. That sensitive area. That area in your life where you give a $100 response to a $10 problem even though you've been reading the Bible for 30 years. We've got to know our need. Some of us know it, and we just got to have the courage to admit it and to cry out to God. I think of the rich young ruler. He comes to Jesus, and he says, what, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus gives him the commandments. Like, okay, I got it. And Jesus, oh, one thing, go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And what does it say? He walked away sad. Now, does Jesus ask all of his disciples to sell everything and give to the poor? No, just read the Gospels. What Jesus does is he, find, he goes to that place you don't want to go. And you have a choice. Will I own that I have this need or will I walk away sad because Jesus didn't give me a gold star because I worked so hard on everything else? I don't say that to sound mean. But some of you in here need to repent of sins. And you're, you're totally focused on getting your wounds healed. Some of you in here need to stop repenting of sins and focus on getting your wounds healed. Some of you in here are being held captive by lies of the enemy. And you need to be delivered from those lies by truth. And probably everybody in here, it's some mixture of all three. But we need to know our need. We have resources to help you know our need. We have people in here to help you know your need. But really it starts with you just being honest enough to say, I am blind. And I am needy. Do you know your need? The second question is, do you know who to cry out to? We, we lean into surrender. Or lean away. We stop short of surrender, that is. Not only by not knowing our need, but by not knowing who to cry out to. We see this at the end of verse 30 again. They heard Jesus was passing by and they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The proverb echoing in the background that we read, trust in the Lord. They could have been crying out to the Pharisees, but they weren't. They could have been crying out to Rome, but they weren't. They had heard of one who had the authority to meet the need that they had. They cried out him, to him as Lord. What a statement in that culture. In a culture where Caesar was Lord. In a culture where to call someone Lord was to call someone God. They cry out to him to this, as the son of David, the great messianic hope of Israel, the king of all. They know who to cry out to. Think of that story in the Old Testament of Elijah versus the prophets of Baal. 
Elijah knew who to cry out to. It was a very risky thing for him to cry out. He cried out alone. He cried out amidst people who had the power to kill him. But those who cried out to false gods, what they had to do in that story is what we do have to do for all our false gods today is they had to continue to hurt themselves, to cut themselves, to make a show, to try to get these gods who they had falsely and foolishly convinced were meeting their needs to act. And that's what a lot of us look like in our lives. We're crying out to false gods. We're crying out to money. We're crying out to pornography. We're crying out to popularity. We're crying out to, to success in school. We're crying out to job promotions. And we're killing ourselves so that these things might feel the need that we have in our heart, that they might silence the guilt, that they might bandage the wounds that they might free us from the lies. And all they do is keep us enslaved by giving us a temporary feeling of relief and escape that leads us deeper in the spiral of our own self-destruction. The enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but Jesus says, I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly, but you have to know who to cry out to. We cry out to the one who can give us what only he can. And we find some others that can do that with us. When we read in the Gospel of Matthew, we see one of the amazing things about it, again, is it's, it's this vision of a community that lives together out of their neediness, crying out to God, to Jesus, because he is enough. Later in the Gospel, uh, the book that is the letter of James, we see that he tells us to confess our sins to one another so that we might be healed. Are you crying out to God? Are you crying out to others? We stop short of surrender by not knowing our need. We stop short of surrender by not knowing who to cry out to. Next, the third thing, we stop short of surrender by not believing our needs can be met. Now, this is intimately connected with the last one, but it's very important. Again, the Proverbs, to, to mirror these texts, says, Acknowledge Him in all your ways, and He will direct your path. These blind men believe that God can meet their needs. They believe that Jesus can bring them the healing that no one else can. And they will continue to cry out persistently. Not only do they do it once in this text, but for the sake of emphasis in the, the literary composition here of Matthew, they do it twice. You can just imagine, these guys were on repeat. They believed that their needs could be met. And they were persistent, persistent that Jesus would meet them. Not out of doubt, but out of faith. Even blindness, physical blindness. Do you believe that your needs can be met? Do you believe that Jesus can give you that freedom from guilt? and fear, and shame that He promises He can. Only then will you cry out to Him. One of the saddest stories I've heard, and I've heard it in several places now, is these stories of children growing up in orphanages where there's not enough people to work or care for them, or even they care that they are there to care for them. 
And so these children who come out of the womb crying for life, screaming out to be, to be loved, to be held, to be cared for, to be fed, to be swaddled. In these mass sort of orphanages, there's not anyone to come. And so guess what they eventually stop doing? They stop crying. I heard the story one time of a, of a person who went to, to adopt out of such an orphanage. And he said he was, to this day is haunted by the eerie silence of a room probably like this filled with babies who are completely quiet. But we're desperately in need. Have you stopped crying out to God? I mean, just be honest. You are not going to change and grow through a phony, fake Christianity that is not willing to be honest about your doubts that God actually will meet your need or cares to. You are not going to jump off that diving board if you think there's this imaginary friend, God, down there who won't be there to catch you. And some of you may have given up. This is why you're stuck in the cycles. Just, just think something even like the seven deadly sins or some of those. Greed or gluttony or lust or pride. And you're just like, man, yeah, I tried that for a while to beat that. But, you know, it's just, it's just how it is. What you're saying, whether you want to say it out loud or not, is I do not believe that God can change me in that area. I'm not talking total perfect change, but I don't believe God can grow me in that area. And so therefore, I have, I have stopped being persistent. Think about those four idols we talk about at times. Control, approval, comfort, and performance. Some of us, whether we've said it out loud or not, have just said... This thing's got me. It's got me, and I'm going to have to just learn to live with it. Maybe what has happened is you have a theoretical concept of who God is. The big reason why you're here, and it's a right one, it's a true one, it's according to the Word of God. But what manages your life is not that at all. You have a functional theology that actually directs your paths that does not acknowledge God for who He is. And it's seen because you are not persistent. Some of you in here have a very high view of the sovereignty of God, and so do I. But does your vision of the high sovereignty of God fit in with the parable of the persistent widow? who continues to come back and say, this is what I need. This is what I need. This is what I need. Because if you can't fit those two together, then you, you can't find the way to follow Jesus according to these words. Can you do that with others? I'm not talking about this backward narcissism that that is so self-absorbed that won't ever let ask anybody else any questions or care. But some of you, maybe in your shame and in your guilt, have stopped going to other people and saying, I am really struggling with this, and I really want to change. 
I just want to say right now, you, not only can you do that in this church, we hope you do that for the rest of your life or as long as you're with us. You want to come say, hey, I'm still having problems in my marriage 20 years from now? Keep fighting. Keep persisting. You want to say, hey, I'm still battling pornography? You want to say, hey, I'm still wrestling with the approval of man? You want to say, stay, I'm still trying to manage my, my anxiety through managing my relationships? I keep recreating my story. Don't start hiding. That'll cause you to make shipwreck of your faith. That'll cause you to live a life of loneliness. It won't be because you read some book of, on atheism and it was out, oh, wow, this finally convinced me. Maybe that happens sometimes. But if you live a double-minded, dishonest life, over time, your functional imaginary God will become true in your theory. God promised Abraham and, I, Abraham and Sarah a child. And oh, the trouble and the vicious cycles they lived in because they didn't keep believing one day Isaac's coming. Isaac is coming. More victory in your life over sin, suffering, and shame is coming. One day Jesus will return and bring all things to completion. Isaac is coming the day of laughter in the face of a world, in the face of your own lies and your own flesh and your own battle. One day you will laugh in the face of the enemy. But in the meantime, the call of discipleship is to believe and to persist, to cry out to God and to keep crying out to others. Fourth, we stop short of surrender by not working through the resistance of seeing change. How do we see this in our text? Well, in Proverbs, there's this tension between foolishness and wisdom, right? And part of the way of foolishness is the way of giving up, right? It's the way of being wise in your own eyes. It's the way of leaning on your own understanding. Well, in our text in Matthew, we not only have the blind men, but we also have the crowds. Notice verse 31. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more. Let's feel that. The crowd rebuked them and told them to be silent. But they just cried out all the more. What was the crowd doing? Verse 29. As they went out from Jericho, a great crowd followed him. So who is the crowd? The crowd is other followers of Jesus. And this is where this gets dicey, isn't it? The crowds were followers of Jesus, but they weren't that needy of Jesus. The crowds didn't like all this begging the crowds didn't like all this screaming. The crowds didn't like it getting this real, getting this raw, getting this messy. So what did the crowd do? 
The crowd tries to clean up the mess. The crowd tries to silence people and to keep everything in its place. To see Jesus as this good teacher, right? Good teacher, this traveling peasant philosopher, sage as it were. But not the son of David, not the Lord who can bring change to the depths of a person, even to their physical blindness. If you want to break free from recreating your story and managing your anxiety through managing relationships or anything you want to change way beyond what we've covered in two weeks, guess what? You're going to face resistance. The world, the flesh, and the devil are going to resist that with all they have. But you're going to honestly probably face resistance by some of the people closest to you. Some of that will not be, or most of that might not even be bad intentions. It's just you're becoming a new you. And they only know how to do relationship with old you. You that flattered them. Not you that had your own voice and told the truth about what you felt. You, you who actually disagreed with them, right? Like this is, this is why this is scary, is you may become this new you that other people didn't become friends with. This is why only Jesus holds us together in the process of change. It's like these sad stories you hear of students, some even like that are around us who are in poverty and get opportunities to go to college, have great gifts and potential and possibility. And trust me, it's all around us. But what happens is, 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 is they're getting this encouragement, this support, but step back into family systems where they're told, where they're mocked, like, ooh, college boy, college girl. Oh, you think you're better than us now. Don't you forget who you, where you came from. And so what happens so often is that the cycle just continues itself because of how hard it is to work through the resistance of change. I remember even when I became a, a follower of Jesus, even though it was at a young age, I had, I've shared some of this before, I had learned to gain some measure of acceptance through, through talking, telling dirty jokes that I didn't even really know all I was saying, learning them on the back of the bus, right? get a laugh but I remember stopping doing that and I remember this not preacher exaggeration I remember one of my friends saying we like the old rusty better now you're at a turning point aren't you if you want to live free in the way of Jesus then, then you're going to have to work through resistance Jesus had to do it Jesus telling his disciples, those closest to him, I'm about to go and fulfill the mission of the Father, die for the sins of the world, and be raised on the third day. And Peter says, no. No, you're not. And Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. He rebukes him, not because he don't love him, because he knows that what's happened is Peter's in line with the enemy. Now, does Jesus then throw Peter out? No, he continues to love Peter. We talked about that last week. He restores Peter. The same person that Jesus says you're the rock on which the church will be built through his confession. 
It's the same person who didn't want to see Jesus fulfill the mission of the Father. He was scared. Who in your life is going to be resistant to you changing? To becoming more like Jesus? And I believe this at the bottom of my heart. It is going to be hard, but those who really love you, it's going to be hard for them. It's going to be hard for you when they do it. But they're going to stay with you. They're going to be patient with you. You're going to have to allow them to have all kinds of feelings about that and not try to fix that. But you'll see who your friends really are. When you get healthy, when you grow into the fullness of the life of Christ, it's going to mess with the system of the family you grew up in, the family you live in now. It's going to mess maybe with your missional community, with your fight club. I don't know. I do know this. Jesus tells us it's going to get worse before it gets better. But Jesus wants you to grow into the freedom and the fullness of what he has made you and called you to be. And he wants us to do that together. But we've got to surrender. We've got to quit blaming We've got to quit hiding. You've heard of the serenity prayer. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. I heard a new version of that this week that I think is so pertinent if we're going to, to be those who don't stop short of surrender. Hear this one. This will, this will get you. Or it did me. God grant me the serenity to accept the people I cannot change, the courage to change the one I can, and the wisdom to know that that one is me. We're going to need a lot of the gospel to live into that, right? I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to change. I'm going to take responsibility for my growth. And I'm going to keep loving people along the way. So we've got to hear the next one. So how do we do this? We stop sort of surrender. Fifth one, by not hearing the heart of Jesus. Notice verse 32 again. And stopping, Jesus called and said, What do you want me to do for you? What in the world? I mean, we miss this stuff, don't we? You're so really familiar with it. Can you imagine Jesus just walking up to you and saying, What do you want me to do for you? I think he's maybe saying that right now. He's not talking about a Porsche, right? What do you want me to do for you in the, in the area that you really need? A real heart need. What do you want me to do for you? You may have never thought in your whole life that Jesus is here asking you that question to your heart. I think he is. I know he was doing it there. I'm wrong. He was doing it there, though. Jesus sees you. Jesus stops. Jesus asks. They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. Verse 34. And Jesus in pity and compassion touched their eyes and immediately they recovered their sight. He stops. He asks. He listens. He cares. He really cares. Jesus here is on his way prove his care in a way that is beyond all historical doubt. 
or personal experience. And yet he still stops and has time for them. And he has time for you. I am the world's worst at this. How many of us are not persistent, at least with others, because we don't want to be a burden on anybody? And I just wonder how many of us are like that when how it comes to Jesus. Like, oh, he probably doesn't want to hear that again. But he is full of compassion towards you, not condemnation. We've already said it today. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Well, how do we know this? Well, if this account of his relationship and his healing of these blind men doesn't prove it to you, then we look to the gospel of his cross and his resurrection. We see that Jesus sees our idols, our need for forgiveness, our wounds, the lies that keep us in these cycles. He, he sees us in our distance, our hiding, our blaming, our shame. And he doesn't run from us. He doesn't say, whoa, what a mess. I don't want to have anything to do with that. He doesn't say, hey, can we just condemn them? No, he comes to face the evil in and around us. And he comes to go to a cross where it says, on the cross he bore the curse of sin. On the cross he suffered for our iniquities. On the cross he bore our sins in his body on the tree. That's how much he cares. That's how committed he is to us. He has put everything on the line so that now we by faith cannot stop short of surrender. He's there. We think of these movies. I don't know if they're all sort of teenager movies where they fall in love with the best friend that was always under their nose. So they say there's all, only so many stories out there in the world, right? That one's really been milked, hasn't it? As the great poet of American modern culture says, she wears high heels, I wear sneakers. She's cheer captain, I'm on the bleachers. Dreaming about the day you wake up and find that what you've been looking for has been here the whole time. If you could see that I'm the one who understands you. Been here all along, so why can't you see you belong with me, standing by and waiting at your back door? All this time, how could you not know, baby? You belong with me. You belong with me. So I feel a little blasphemous in saying this. But we stop short of surrender when we fail to see that our best friend is right under our noses. Jesus, who loves you, who gave himself from you, who rose for you, who lives and indwells you, he is with you. He's standing under the diving board saying, I'm, I'm never going to leave you nor forsake you. You can come to the edge a million times, but you're never going to come to the edge of your change of trying to break out of that story, to deal with that sin, to get free from that anxiety. You're never going to come there, and I'm not going to be there with outstretched hands ready to catch you. He's going to say, why do you keep going off the diving board and going back to the, to the cooler to get another Coke or get another candy bar to make you feel better? He wants you to jump. He wants you to be free. Do you believe Jesus has the compassion, the care, and the power to meet your need? This is going to cost us something. 
Last one. We stop short of surrender by not embracing the cost of discipleship. To, to jump is to step out of our, uh, I hate churchy cliches, and I about said one, I'm going to say it anyway. To jump is to step out of our comfort zone. Why well, I don't want to say that, but it's true, isn't it? Right? To jump is to come out of our comfort zone. To jump is to no longer live the way you lived before. You're like, I like, I like getting to the edge of the diving board and then going back to my Snickers and my Coke. And whatever, I'm not saying that's destructive, but it can be. If that's why you're doing it, right? Notice the end of verse 34. And they followed him. Then we could just read all of Proverbs 3, 5 through 8 again. They followed him. Following him equals a whole new life. These guys have lived on the side of the road begging for money. They have an identity as being the blind guys who beg and people give them money. What are they going to have to do now? They're going to have to learn to work. They're going to have to learn to manage their time. They're going to have to learn about finances and, and life rhythms and relationships. They're going to have to learn to live in a whole new world. That's going to cost them things. In a lot of ways, their life's going to be a lot easier and better. And in a lot of ways, it's going to be a lot harder. Jesus never shies away from this when he talks about us coming. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And here's how you're going to get rest. You're going to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. And we're like, whoa, how does that compute into American culture? I thought if I followed you, I would just be able to lay down and go to sleep at night and prop my legs up and enjoy life. He's wanting to give us something so much better than that dream of idealized comfort. But it's going to mean surrender. Those who wish to gain their life must lose it. Those who wish to live must die. Who in here wants to surrender? I don't. What is surrender? Surrender is losing. This is why Jesus blew people's mind and ultimately why they sent him to a cross is because Jesus was not on a mission of living in relationships in the world through power and control, phony false attempts to be safe and to be right. Surrender means you can't have your cake and eat it too. The most miserable Christians in the world are those, are those who think they can tack Jesus onto their lives as they already are. Oh, they're just so miserable, right? Because they're on, they've got one foot in this and one foot here. And it's like you're just, you're just never really anywhere. And so you're just, you're just miserable. 
some of us in our relationships, like it's, it's not even like totally issues of people's sin. It's just like you want to be right more than you want to have a relationship. And sometimes if you want to have a good relationship, guess what you're going to have to be? A loser. I don't have to win that argument. I don't have to be right. My spouse can be messy on their side of the room. (laughs) Let's still love each other. My friends don't have to totally understand me. We can still love each other. We stop short of surrender when we aren't really willing to embrace the cost. Pride stops us short. I don't need help as much as other people do. And we say that, okay, well, just keep fighting in that cycle. Friends, you'll have some, well, we didn't know you were that needy. Money. We like to talk about money, but stopping short of surrender might mean it costs you some money, right? You might have to get some resources. You might, at some seasons of your life, have to get some type of professional help, right? And you're like, well, I might not get to go out to eat so that I can do that or do these entertainment things. Time, oh, it's going to cost you time. Comfort, a lot of comfort in a spiritual warfare that will not let up. But if there is no cost, there will be no change. And there will be no freedom, and there will be no flourishing, and there will no be experience of all the abundant life Christ has for us to experience in the way we can in this present fallen world. So we're back on the diving board. Maybe people are laughing. Maybe in your head you're thinking, I'm going to jump. This is going to be the most embarrassing belly flop in the history of the world. But here we go. This is why we come to the table. Jesus is waiting. He's not going to leave. He's patient. But he's waiting. He's waiting for you to jump. He's waiting for you to jump before you have all the knowledge about what comes next. He's waiting for you to give up control of your story. But we must jump. And the only way we live in freedom, the surrender, the freedom of Jesus is to jump into that surrender.